Sometimes uh, father and son have been working on the same software. This actually has happened. I've seen it with a with a Swedish client, which which to me is the ultimate nightmare. Ultimate <laughs> nightmare to to work on. This. I mean, what is the meaning of life, guys? I thought you were going to say that was a really beautiful story. <laughs> yeah, some sort of circle of life. Horrendous. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely horrendous. Welcome to Cloud Realities, a conversation show exploring the practical and exciting alternate realities that can be unleashed through cloud-driven transformation. I'm Dave Chapman. And I'm Shao Kazal. And I'm Rob Kernahan. And this week we're going to be talking about Technovision 2023, a comprehensive report on the trends influencing business and tech decision making this year. Specifically, They've made a call to action to be respectful of the increasingly scarce resources we have at our disposal, balancing commercial futures with a societal impact. In the first of two special episodes, we're going to look at the overall philosophy of the work first and talk about the key five trends. In part two, we'll look at the mindset that informed the work and the important design principles that allow organizations to apply it within their context. And joining us this week, I'm delighted to say, is Ron Toledo, Data and Insights CTO at Capgemini and the overall leader of Technovision. Welcome, Ron. Great to see you. Do you want to say a little word about yourself and just introduce what you do? Hi, Dave. Thank you very much for introducing me. I'm uh, doing this broadcast uh, from uh, the Netherlands, as you can probably tell by my uh, accent, which I wouldn't be able to, uh, to hide. And it's a real pleasure to be on this podcast. Uh, Technovision is just out. It's having a lot of impact, and I'll be very happy to share a few of the key insights of it. Maybe take us back to the inception of it to start with and tell us where it came from and what the journey's been like so far. It goes back a long a long time, Dave, actually already back to uh, 2007. Even before that, uh, we had something which we sort of, um, I think, informally already call uh, Technovision, but then a few years later, we really decided to to, uh, to pick things up seriously. I did it at the time together with Pierre Hessler, known as, as the first and, and, and currently only Capgemini fellow. And uh, so, so around 2007, we, uh, we created the first version of it and we presented it to a lot of people, including a few executives. And I can still remember that one of the executives said to me, well, we, so, so we showed it to him and we were like, hey, what do you think? And he was like, well, it's neither techno nor vision. Right. And uh, at, at the time, you were a little bit disappointed, uh, slightly yeah, annoyed. Right. Uh, oh, feedback you want, is it? Yeah, well, you know, um, it was his executive way to do that and, and maybe uh, sort of sort of trigger us a little bit, which probably worked. Mm. And, you know, in hindsight, I, I think he was right because Technovision is not only about technology. There, there's, uh, we're very much interested in the business impact we create with technology. Uh, including all of the, the, the business context around it. So, so there's actually a lot of business use cases and business impact um, in the documents. And then it's also not just a vision, um, which, by the way, contains as well. So, so it has a vision every year. You know, we have, we have a, a vision on, on where the economy is going, where society is going, how technology can be applied to deal with everything that, that arises from that. Mm. Uh, but it's also a very actionable framework and tool set. Uh, so, so we, it's actually designed to be used on a daily basis. So, so not like a piece of thought leadership. Let's read it on a Sunday afternoon. Okay. That was interesting. Thank you very much. Next. Mm. But, but instead we, we're creating something which is really much more a framework and a tool set that you can use as a daily basis to, to, to innovate. Before we get to this year's, when you, when you look back on say 2007 to mm. 2022, what are the big things that strike you about the journey? you know, the world has been on over that period? Well, I, I certainly know that, that we have been going ourselves with Technovision through a, a quest for simplicity, not because we wanted to simplify things, but because most of our people around us that, that used the stuff or read the stuff or tried to read it said to us, oh, could it be a little bit more simple, please? You know, mm. why, why do I need a PhD? Why, why do I need to, to have won the Nobel Prize to actually understand this stuff? That's what another executive said to us. He, he literally said, should I really be a Nobel Prize winner to understand this stuff? Did he say, do I need to be a Nobel Prize winner to understand the techno and the vision? Yeah, exactly. Well, something like that. So, 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 so I, I've seen uh, a simplification. I've seen, uh, you know, a, a decrease of attention span. 
with, with many of the people that use the stuff and read the stuff over the years. So, so the thing became shorter and shorter and shorter. I wouldn't say it's already tweet level, but, but I predicted a few years ago, sooner or later, uh, we have 37 trends and each of them is only a tweet because anything right. else more than that would be, I don't know, uh, overwhelming, so difficult. The whole thing just becomes a tweet thread. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so, so, so it's tempting, you know, to actually do that, um, or, or simply write haikus for each and every of the trends. And that's it, right? 37 little, little poems. And, and maybe that is simple enough. So it's, it's a strange world. Of course, the, the world, uh, has become more and more truly a digital world. So, so as we like to say, every business is a technology business now. And we've seen that evolve over the course of, of 15 years particularly this limited attention span and finding different ways to engage with the whole framework and the tool set has, has right. um, proven to be very crucial. Ron, before we dig into Technovision 2023, just give us an insight into where your heads were at when you grouped together to discuss what you might come up with for this year's trends. It's interesting, Dave. It's actually quite a difficult exercise, you know, because we typically already group together more than half a year before we release the thing. So somewhere um, around around June, typically, together with a merry band of, of CTOs from, from across the global organization. And, and we start to brainstorm. And you, so you try to think ahead in terms of what will next year look like. And, and, and obviously, we were in the middle of, of 22, which was a very shaky year, obviously, because of all the geopolitical developments. And with that, all the economic fallout of it and all the uncertainty that came with it. Having said that, uh, we, we already had uh, pioneered the concept of uh, be like water and being like water, which were the main themes of the, the 22 and the 21 editions, right. uh, as a plea to use technology for, for more agility, adaptivity, resilience, you know, while keeping the flow. Uh, anything really applying technology to deal with that uncertainty. So, so we did feel, well, you know, we, we could do another one with water, maybe for the third year and still have a concept that, that sort of resonates that. Uh, but, but, but we did feel it was time for, for something else, something new. So, so we came up with, with a theme that, that sort of addresses on one hand still the uncertainty, because clearly 23, you know, anybody who, who knows may say it, but, but, uh, you know, this world can change literally overnight. Uh, yeah. And with that also the economy and, and with that also our, our dependence on, on technology in all sorts of different ways. But then we also felt that scarcity of things, so both natural resources and, and human resources, you know, cheap money, essentially, supply chains, literally anything essentially could be, could be scarce. Uh, so, so that's an important thing. And we realize with technology, you can, you can challenge that, that scarcity. You can deal with that scarcity if you choose the right technologies. And then, of course, sustainability still, still tops uh, the agenda of, of many executives. So, so bringing that all together, we felt is, is the melting pot, which would determine 23 and, and the way we should look at, at technology developments and, and technology trends. So you're looking at the sort of power of technology, but in a way that looks at it not from just the point of view of, say, transforming organizations and, and society and the world around us, but actually balancing just the right innovation with the actual wider impact it might have on the world. Well, precisely. And, and it is, of course, there's a wealth of technologies you could choose from, right? So as the theme for this year, we've, we've been choosing uh, right to technology, right to future. So writing, as in right sizing, but also choosing exactly the right technologies out of a wealth, I would say, of different options that, that yeah. you could, you know, select to, uh, to enable that technology-driven change. And on the other hand, if you do that in, in the right way, uh, in the right sustainable way, by the way, as well, uh, mm. you, you'll be able to, to, to thrive even in an, an era of uncertainty and in an era of, uh, of scarcity. Is it referring to, in terms of coming at it with that mindset, are you referring to like less innovation or more focused innovation? What's the way through the scarcity problem, but without losing your innovation repairs, do you think? 
Well, yeah, let, let, let's be honest. Uh, we, we used to say, of course, let a thousand flowers bloom, right? Because there was an abundance of, of cheap technologies and resources maybe also available. Right. So we could try all of these different things and let's see what works. And if it doesn't work, oh, such a pity, we'll try something else, right? And nowadays that, that could be uh, have you know causing an enormous pressure on, on the environment, for example, and all the other, let's say, scarce resources that you need in order to do it. So you need to be much smarter. You need to be much smarter about um, the choices you make. And I like that because you, you engineer your portfolio a little bit more in terms of what will be the things that uh, quite likely will deliver what I'm looking for. And also, is there a proper balance between all of the resources I need for it, including energy and, and uh, you know, natu- natural resources, uh, metals, whatever? Um, and, and is that in a proper balance? Uh, with, with the value it delivers and 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 the economic uh, let's say um, fallout that it could create, right? So so it's truly a balancing act, and we need to be a little bit more smarter about it. Maybe also a bit more selective. As you were debating that as a core theme, or actually more than a theme, isn't it? It's almost like a surrounding philosophy mm-hmm. for this year's work. Did you have any good or bad examples of where you've looked at this and? elsewhere and thought actually that one they particularly cracked it there good and bad examples of this mm. um i do feel that that's what we see with a lot of, of our client organizations that we work with is, is that they simply have a vast portfolio of, of different things right so so they've, they've been developing for years uh, and growing for years their applications portfolio without ever re-engineering it or rationalizing it so so it only grows 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 right and now of course with data we've seen the same thing i've seen a lot of Companies simply starting to collect as much data as they can because it's the era of big data and the more the better, right? Right. The more the better. And, and then, and then you find yourself a few years later. And I've seen several of these organizations with a heap of, of data and they don't know how to activate it, what to do with it. And it's also become unmanageable because it's such a loss and it's duplicated everywhere across the organization and nobody knows anymore. What actually to do with it? So, so you you have a huge data store there. So you have a lot of different data points, and nobody's there to activate the stuff. And that is uh, that's rather unfortunate, right? Mm. I, I think we should, if we add something to our portfolio, we may want to think about getting rid of two other things uh, before you do it. Right, like keeping a, a constant watching brief. And we we talked on a couple of episodes of the show this season, particularly in relation to things like data and the rise of AI that mm-hmm. it used to be very much, I think your expression, like a thousand flowers blooming or actually we've got a great solution. Now what's the problem? Yeah. And we were talking about the fact that going into 2023 with the ins- uncertainty in the world and with the likely economic challenges that a lot of the world is going to face, that there are a series of big problems that are suggesting themselves that might help sort of focus some of this tooling. Like we, we talked about, for example, like supply chain optimization mm-hmm. in, in the face of uh, deglobalization trend or in the face of economic downturn. Is that the sort of thing that you're suggesting as well as the having a strong grip on the environmental impacts that what you're doing kind of has directly, but also kind of getting a bit more kind of focused on the question, what's the problem we're trying to solve with some of this stuff? Yeah, yeah, precisely. Because otherwise, yeah, indeed, as you could also put it, we, we have a very big aspirin, but we don't know for what headache, right? Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's, uh, it is time that we turn that uh, more around uh, and be a bit more mature in, in terms of the technologies that we assess and, and, and what we look at, how we look at them and what type of value that they could produce for us. And then we have these main themes, right? So, so, so we see a little bit better what we want to achieve with it. Some of these technologies can help us to become more sustainable because it's still on top of many agendas, you know, that, that net zero journey that a lot of uh, companies are embarking on. Well, what are the solutions that help me to achieve that? And, and then you get the counter question, but wait a minute, this, this brilliant AI algorithm that helps me to optimize it itself burns a lot of energy, produces a lot of CO2, right? So where exactly how does that, uh, that balance sheet uh, look like? Uh, obviously, there's a lot of smart technologies, including AI these days, that can help us to produce more with, with less resources. And, and I all think we, we agree that there's a, a lack, a scarcity of, of, of human resources, but also natural resources will very much be a given. And we know that, funnily enough, again, with, with more technology, uh, we, we could actually 
you know, achieve less in, in terms of, of um, doing with fewer uh, people and fewer resources, funnily enough, by bringing in more technology. So that's a very interesting uh, balance act as well. And then, of course, they're, they're still using technology to be uh, prepared for anything like broken supply chains, like, uh, you know, instantaneously uh, changing uh, customer behavior and so on. All of the technologies we've seen pop up also in the, during the pandemic that, that we've learned to appreciate and that we've been right. using for, for corporate agility. Well, so let's dig in to the to the core themes that you guys came yeah. up with. I think there is there are six core trends that are in this year's uh, Technovision twenty twenty three, uh, and we'll just let's just step through each of them and and uh, and get a view and have a bit of a discussion around them. Mm-hmm. So first of all, invisible infrastructure. So yes. obviously, there's a huge amount going on at, at the platform layer these days, and uh, we're well on the way to the cloud. So when you talked about invisible infrastructure, you know where were you at? It's, it's interesting because we made up that term literally 15 years ago, invisible mm. infrastructure. And what we meant with it at the time was, on one hand, uh, infrastructure needs to become less, 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 you know, so, so it became virtualized, it became standardized, and then as a result of it, it could disappear to the cloud, right? So infrastructure truly became more and more invisible, which we like. I like as a core theme in many different technology trends, the fact that something gets thinner, thinner, more lightweight, more elegant, and then it sort of seems to disappear and is still, uh, you know, producing and delivering for you. So on one hand, we have the invisibility theme, and we've always said, well, you know, the final desired end state of an infrastructure is, where is it? There is no infrastructure, you know, infrastructure, where are thou? Um, and on the other hand, infrastructure is getting richer because we have the Internet of Things, and, and as we now call it also the Internet of Twins, Internet of Digital Twins. So so all of that brings in a lot of additional, let's say, points of, of, of access of, of data, and points of, of interaction for which we need an infrastructure that can deal with that as well. So infrastructure is also becoming more a infrastructure, right? So so it's these two big themes that, that we still see in, in a combination and, and so, so yes, there's a lot of edge computing. There's a lot of internet of things that, that you need to take into account these days if you're working with infrastructure. And on the other hand, we, we realize that, uh, hey, it's the very name of the podcast, of course, but, but uh, there's, there's a future in clouds that, that is still evolving clearly and, and is absolutely crucial in that quest for, for invisibility. Uh, having said that, there, there's some, there's something happening there as well. Uh, we, we have coined a new trend within that container, invisible infrastructure. Uh, which we call uh, my industry, my clouds. And, and what we're saying is over there, well, you know, if infrastructure sooner or later also becomes more or less the operating system for your business applications right. that are specific to your industry, you, you have reached yet another level of abstraction, right? And, and created part of your, your business applications infrastructure also as something invisible because you sort of be pr- uh, procured as a, uh, as an industry from an industry cloud provider. And, and with that, uh, you can probably get rid of a lot of your old legacy stuff that is burning a lot of energy, you know, demanding a lot of servers and is not delivering the state of the art industry best practices that you're looking for. And on the other hand, also because it's very likely delivered as a, as a service. It's probably done through, uh, through cloud providers that have uh, better green practices. So it also would be more sustainable. So, so we see the infrastructure level. Increasingly rising to to sort of start to embrace that that industry applications level as well, and and that is something that that we currently see a lot these, these industry clouds, uh, sector specific industry specific clouds that that are maybe in a way are, are the next level at an infrastructure um, you know platform context and and actually applications become in a way also the new infrastructure. So, Ron, if you take the sector solutions that you see mm-hmm. rise, mm-hmm. if everybody uses the same thing because yep. it's very convenient and easy, mm-hmm. do you think we're at risk of losing things that differentiate different organizations and make them different in the marketplace? Or do you think there'll still be enough flexibility in those sector solutions to allow people to be different? You know, Rob, I, I consider it the 80-20 rule. Um, let's be honest, 80 to, if 80% of the work that we do and we realize it's all done in the same way across all of the different organizations within the sector. We can benefit from an industry best practice because it's contained in these industry cloud solutions and platforms. So if that's done for us, 
and we don't have to deal with it because 80% of the work is already done for us, then, then we can fully focus on the 20%. That makes a company differentiating, right? That makes a, a company competitive or, or different or, or sort of deliver on its specific purpose that you want. So, so I personally think that, that way too much of our energy is typically spent on things that doesn't help us to differentiate at all. So if industry clouds help us to achieve that, it's brilliant, right? And, and, and we'll probably be back at, at the AI topic as well, which does the same these days for us. It can deliver 80% of something. It's just the foundation. It's more or less generic. And then we can very quickly get on top of it and, and do all of the stuff that makes the difference. Hmm. If you think back to the old days, the amount of effort we used to expend just dealing with the very basic things, that all that toil has now gone, I suppose it's getting as much focus as we can on that 20% that you talk about to make sure that the real difference has all our mind share mm. and thought power applied to it. Well, I think that is a great bridge actually onto trend two, which is applications unleashed. We have to liberate ourselves somehow uh, from uh, the burden of, of the existing legacy landscape, which is outdated and doesn't help us to achieve the things that we want to achieve with, uh, with, with IT and applications. Unleashing in that sense is like breaking them up, creating API gateways, microservices, kind of unleashing the yeah. functional power of them, presumably, as well as you know retiring the dead code. Yeah, precisely. To, to begin with that, by the way, get, get rid of the legacy applications that no longer deliver that differentiating value you're looking for. So let's, let's rationalize that and decommission as much as we can. Then we have a next generation of applications that are, uh, again, lightweight and, and almost not visible as applications because they are microservices, right? They, they are microservices. They are API first. They are cloud native. They are also headless because they don't have a user interface. Mm-hmm. The famous uh, Mac. M-A-C-H characteristics, of course. So, so that, that, that creates for a much, much more, let's say, lightweight, agile type of application portfolio. So, so that, that also opens up the way to unleash a new generation of applications. So, so that's a bit the wordplay here. We liberate the, these old legacy applications, but we also unleash a new generation of application services uh, that, that bring us that functionality, that, that business enablement that, that we're looking for. Hmm. And within that, presumably, is the third trend, which is yes. which is data, and how a, a different style of unleashing and consuming applications. Also, you have to put your mind on what you're doing with data at that point. Absolutely, and and by the way, I don't see one thing contained to the other. Uh, I've spent a big deal, a big part of my career in software engineering about the last eight, nine years, particularly also in data analytics and, and AI, can, can see a little bit of both worlds, actually. Um, I've always found, by the way, that the world of data, which is still uh, a lot evolving, uh, can learn a lot from the world of software engineering, where some of the, let's say, innovations in terms of architecture and way of delivery seem to take place a little bit earlier than in the world of, of data. So, so you always see a lot of, uh, let's say, similarities between the two worlds. You see that in data as well. In, in, in data, we start to realize bringing it all together in one big monolithic giant doesn't really deliver the value of data that we're all looking for. So, so we see more and more this, this idea of federated data in which business domains uh, embrace the data themselves much more that belongs to their business domain. And then they start to manage data truly as a product. Uh, a compelling product with, with a compelling and attractive experience in using it for others, both inside the organization, in another business domain, or even even outside. Um, and, and then, of course, there's a whole new heap, a heap of, of new technologies that enable you uh, to do that and make it available. And, and there we see a lot of lessons from the world of software engineering, because, again, next generation data is delivered through APIs, through, through microservices. Uh, it's much more lightweight. It's platform-enabled. And, and definitely reminds us a lot of the, the breakthroughs uh, we've seen in, uh, in software engineering as well. So, so data as a product is a, is a term that's used quite a lot. Just in your mind, just, just sort of help us define that out a little bit. What's the difference between you know, managing data in the old sense of it and data as a product? I think the way we used to manage data in the past was, well, as long as you make something, you know, accessible and available, uh, miracles will happen, right? And, and in, in practice, of course, that didn't happen at all. Uh, because if you sell a product, a real product, a service to the outside world, you do product management, right? You, you do an outside-in design thinking oriented exercise. You, you, you look at what is the experience and how can we make it compelling? 
to buy and use this product, right? All of that, and, 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 and we apply product management to it. But the moment we realize, well, data is now becoming a, a, a first class, class A product for the organization itself, and, and, and we all realize that, right? More organizations see the, the key value of it. So what keeps you then from applying the, the same way of thinking and approach to, to data as well? Uh, but mm. right now, it's not often the case. We, we don't consider data as a product that should have a compelling experience uh, when you consume it, for example, or should simply be an attractive product that is very easy to use and, and makes you come back for more. So So how can we... Because that's one of the big things we, we see in many organizations. Data data is not necessarily um, uh, considered exciting to use or easy to use, right? It's uh, it's a big secret. And if you're unlucky, it's it's really sort of driven by a central data department that, that has all sorts of entry gates that are heavily guarded. So it's very difficult to get into that in that in that data if you want to use it. Well, it's a very different mindset, isn't it? Coming at it from a point from the kind of inside out where you're... Yeah. desperately trying to manage you know mountains of data and actually probably not succeeding versus coming at it from an outside in perspective where you you're coming at it with a usage mindset mm-hmm. you see what i mean it's like like yeah. a, it's a very distinctly different way of managing the situation and and it's actually remarkable uh, if you realize that we, that we haven't been thinking like that for a long time. It helps solve the age-old problem of organizations just never getting their heads around MDM, doesn't it? Because they're just coming at it from a, a different perspective. Yeah, and you never right. get you, it's like the endless problem. And, and by the way, a lot of business domains like this idea of oh hey we're, we're going to own the data ourselves, you know now it's ours and and we're going to manage it as a class A product and and then of course. After that, you realize, oh, wait a minute, it means that that we are actually responsible for that part of our data estate. Uh, so we have to apply product management to it. And uh, we, we must make other business units within our organization actually to like our stuff, our data products. And it's actually quite a tough call, right? Because now responsibility shifts to the business domains. Uh, which they, I think, always wanted. Nobody objected to it, but, but actually having to embrace that. And, and for example, really understand how to manage data, including data science, data analytics, data engineering, data governance. Uh, you know, it's an interesting shift. Th- these are not necessarily new capabilities, but they are nil at, at the places where, where they are now being um, positioned. I think there was always that phrase I like, which was digital litter, which is the data that you create that you no longer ever need. And it's how yeah. much data sat there that's no use to anyone, but is has a CO2 impact. You know, it's being stored somewhere, there's power to sustain it, it confuses the business. It's like getting control of that. So then you know what's useful and then you can go and do your engineering over the top and make that happen. I don't think many businesses have got a handle on that yet, but I was keen to hear your view um, around if you thought that that was that they'd started, they understand the ch- challenge and the, the break in the back of the problem. Well, and, and, and the good thing is, if, if you start to realize that, that, that there is a waste, that there's actually data waste um, currently in the organization, just like in applications, by the way, again, we've, we've realized applications sprawl uh, and legacy applications are keeping us from, from you know, they're, they're yeah. asked for a lot of, of management and, and maintenance. And, and uh, there's also uh, indeed a, a, let's say, environmental cost to it as well. It's the same with data. So actually, we have this new trend in, in the thriving on data container in Technovision, which is called net zero data. And with it, we mean, again, two things. It's, again, a bit of a wordplay because on one hand, we're saying, hey, data is key to your net zero journey. So manage it as, as something that is that is central to, to your business purpose and your business journey. So learn how to manage data, but also exchange it with other organizations because that is the key to net zero data. But, but with it, we also mean data itself has a cost. It comes with a cost. Uh, we uh, probably collect way too much data. We probably are duplicating it way too much. We're currently uh, pr- very likely storing data that we won't need ever anymore. And with that comes an environmental cost. You get your e-waste, um, all sorts of different, let's say, concerns that, that come with, with storing more and more and more data uh, without uh, rationalizing it. And, and the beautiful thing is, uh, Rob, if you st- if you start to simplify that, and if you start to clean up that landscape, you realize uh, you're not just creating a sustainability impact, which is good. We want a positive sustainability impact, so so less e-waste. We're consuming less energy. We're producing less CO2 because we have uh, less data to take care of. But, but while doing so, of course, you realize uh, you're you're you know you're you're updating and and cleaning up your your whole data landscape as well. 
uh, as a result. So I always call this a journey with benefits. Net net zero is very good, <laughs> very good sustainable. Yeah. Uh, it's a, but it's a zero. It's a journey with benefits because it will actually give you a better data landscape, which, which is highly optimized and, and better managed and governed as well as a result. And that's then take the next step on the journey, which is, you know, to something that I think is already undeniably perhaps one of the biggest conversational topics of 2023 so far, which is artificial intelligence and process automation. So as you were coming at this in summer 2022, you were almost on the other side at that point of ChatGPT and what's Mm -hmm. subsequently happening in the world of AI. First of all, what's going on in the trend? And is it already going faster than you thought it might go? Well, Actually, uh, within within Technovision, we already had the notion of what we called creative machine for a few years. So we actually had a trend there that that already acknowledged, and, and, you know, already for for three years, uh, we acknowledged this this idea of AI is becoming more generative and creative. So it can help us to do things that go way beyond the basic level of automation. So we had that for quite some time. Having said that, of course, in in this world of AI, you, you get some breakthroughs that, as we've seen literally more than in the past few weeks than even in the past few months that that really made us scratch our head right and and uh, if you realize that we start already on some of the content right after summer writing the thing and then and then you're about to release it and, and it's done already let's say beginning of december because that's typically the time frame we we follow and and, and then in december chat gpt generative ai really starts to hit hard and 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 everybody starts to use it and and on a daily basis almost you see the new announcements so so we actually had to uh, sort of you know um rewrite a few sentences and, and and make it a little bit more up to date which we never had to do in the past so that sort of proves how fast that thing went uh, having said that already around september and maybe even august uh, last year we decided that all of the visual art in the document, in the Technovision document, would be generated by AI. And at that time, when we decided it, it was like, are you crazy? I can still remember uh, marketing and communications where I'm like, what, what, what are you going to do? And we were like, well, you know, try it. And, and then it was silent for one or two weeks. And then they came back and they were like, we've seen the light. And, uh, you know, uh, our, our, the world will be different from now on. And, and now... And now, if, if you if you look at the document and you say, hey, look at the illustrations, they've all been generated by AI, then it's like, yeah, okay, sure, that's 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 nice, you know, why not? Uh, so so you can see how how fast these things evolve currently. I can see where you're going on Technovision 2024 at this rate. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's like not just the art, the next year's. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, um, hold hold my beer. I would almost say, but but it's. <laughs> I, I think that's bound to happen, uh, Dave, uh, frankly. Uh, we, we would be foolish not to. It's, again, the 80-20 rule, by the way. So I believe some of the heavy lifting you need to do in, in, or, you know, in order to describe the foundations and the basic of things. Uh, I, I think um, a, a system such as JetGPT, because we'll see many more in the forthcoming months, uh, it will certainly help us and augment us in doing that. And, and you know, if it can do 80% of the heavy lifting for us, when properly yeah. prompted and properly guided and properly, of course, monitored and, and managed by us as humans, then, then mm. uh, I think we would be foolish not to do so. It's already pretty clear, like eight weeks in to, you know, having, having chat GPT in the world, that the use of things like boilerplate text is yeah. already going away because, mm-hmm. you know, why would you use something that was written eight months ago that you're just repurposing rather than just getting a new version of that written for you on which you then base your position? Precisely. And, and it is the 80% thing, for, first of all, because you need human oversight. Uh, this is distinctively artificial. I always say, what do you think the A stands for? It is artificial intelligence. So, so let's not try to compare this to, to the way people, humans would reason or, or uh, you know, would fact check their stuff. It's not like that. It's just plain pattern matching that, that is actually happening there. It's, it's incredibly stupid if you know how it works. It's, it's, it's you know, it, it's really incredibly stupid, uh, as simple as it is. Uh, but, but if we do it well, if, if we monitor it well, if, if we have that human oversight, I, I think it helps us tremendously. Also, by the way, people that are not, were not able in the past to express themselves as eloquently or, or 
you know, in, in any other style they choose, uh, they were not able to express themselves, maybe because they didn't master, for example, the English language enough to do it, maybe even because they were dyslectic or anything else. And, and here we see a, a phenomenal enabler to, to um, you know, ha have more people uh, share their thoughts and, and describe it in a way that is compelling to others. And let's maybe use that as a brilliant way to step into the final area that you guys looked at, which was around user experience and experience generally and collaboration on top mm -hmm. of all of these technologies, which I guess is where all of this really does come alive. No, absolutely. And, and, and all of these things, of course, enable each other, right? So, so if we're looking at user experiences, we've always called this, this container, by the way, the U experience, because we said, well, what is a desired end state of a user experience? Well, it's all about you. It completely you know, encapsulates your intentions and, and what you want to achieve without doing anything for it. So again, the idea of a very lightweight, almost invisible user experience, we, we've always loved that a lot. What if there is no experience? Because, you know, your intention is already clear and it's delivered to you even before you have to state it or have to express yourself. Obviously, we need a lot of AI to, uh, to do that. Uh, and, and I love the idea of uh, prompt engineering, as you currently see it in, in AI. Prompt engineering meaning you can get a lot out of the system, but there's this new, there's this new capability of, of expressing the right prompts so that you really... In, in, in a very clear way, describe your intentions, what you're looking for. And then maybe it's, it's a visual AI or a text AI or soon uh, songs and, and video, all of that. Um, you know, it, it will, it will generate what you're looking for. If, if your prompts, if you has, have expressed your intentions in the right way. And, and then of course, if a system is able to collect a lot of data on it and start to understand you better and better in an emphatic way, I, I might, uh, you know, want to add in an emphatic, warm way, then, then it could literally say, well, you know, you want to express what you're looking for, but say no more. You know, I, I think I know what I'm looking for. I've already delivered it to you. Mm -hmm. and, and we all know that there's a fine line here, right? B between on one hand, that is a very warm feeling. The system knows so much about me. It's, it's, I don't even need to express right. myself. And on the other hand, uh, very easy, of course, it'd be good, you know, it would become creepy. You would say, are you monitoring me? Are you, are you profiling me? You know, are you, are you using algorithms to predict my intentions? You know, and, and, and if you, if you do it the wrong way, it becomes spooky. Yeah. Creepy. Gets a little bit minority report, doesn't yeah. it? About precognition of whatever you're going to do next. Yeah. It's a brilliant movie, by the way, with Tom, Tom Cruise, of course, Minority Report. And in a way, it's already old fashioned because look at the way he interacts with the screen with, with big, uh, you know, big gloves, uh, big, big gloves. Huge on, gloves and, yeah. and why? Why, why would you need these silly gloves, right? And, right. And, and, and on the other hand, a, a predictive algorithm that knows before you know that you're going to, in this case, kill something, which is a bit spooky maybe, but, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're there, I guess, in a way. But now, indeed, the uh, challenge will be not to make it creepy. <laughs> Let's just talk about the, the collaboration aspect, Ron. Obviously, during the pandemic, online collaboration, like, really fundamentally came of age. Like, we've obviously been doing a lot of collaboration in the 20 odd years before that but there was something about the shift during the pandemic when organizations had an existential crisis they had to move online the nature of work changed as a result of that and i think the you know the world is still laboring under what exactly hybrid working actually is you know i suspect we'll work that out over over the coming years but what was your angle on collaboration and and trying to come at it from a fresh perspective well, we, we've definitely seen a few in the past few years, literally, in, indeed, during the pandemic that became uh, a paramount and, and um, be, became emphasized. So, so, yes, you already mentioned it. One of the trends we called the team is the canvas. And, and, and the idea was from now on, it's not your individual desktop anymore where you start your day, but it's actually your team. And that might be literally your team's environment or whatever other online collaborative environments you're using. There's also the notion of fluid workforce, uh, which is a trend in, in which we identified, well, you know, nowadays it's not only a matter of being able to work wherever you are, but, but also in or outside the organization in a much looser um, connected way because technology actually enables you to do that. And nowadays in a time of scarcity, that's increasingly important because we, have, we don't have many people. So, so the, we have to have the people at the right places where they um, have most fun and also can deliver most value to, to the organization or, or between organizations, right? So 
you see a lot of uh, crucial technology there that also helps us now to deal with uh, with the scarcity theme rather than than it was our lifeline during the pandemic as well but now you see that the scarcity theme is very much addressed through it as well and and then you see again this notion of lightweight which which i think is a common theme across uh, technovision we have a new trend in, in this collaboration container, which we call, by the way, we collaborate. And within that container, we have a new trend, which is called no leaders. Well, if you want something lightweight, uh, then, then it's no, it's no longer there. And, and we've used this trick. Yeah. And we finally evolved to that point, Ron. Well, yeah, but, but, but so the thing is, often you get less and less and less, and then it's no longer there. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, the final, often very innovative end state of, of a development is it's no longer there. And, mm. and if you look at innovation, the world of innovation, it often happens like that. Becomes more lightweight, 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 sort of virtualizes and, and then seems to go up maybe in the clouds or something else. And, and we think with, uh, with, with, um, you know, the, all the notions that we have in web free and, and blockchain and decentralized distributed uh, platforms really uh, to collaborate. You also see, see this idea of maybe we could in real time work together. And, and make decisions, maybe enabled by 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 uh, the blockchain, and and do not depend anymore on on central leadership to to guide us um, through it because it takes too long. It's not effective, and maybe we don't have enough people. And augmented by AI, by the way, we're able to make our own decisions uh, on the spot rather than relying on central leadership. So so we're like, well, there's a whole series of these technologies coming together, distributed, federated, autonomous, AI enabled. Um, it helps us maybe to have uh, organizations that uh, don't really need or have much leadership and, and become more agile and responsive as a result. I mean, certainly that move away from the traditional sort of militaristic command and control organization, I think, has been, you know, kind of has been happening, hasn't it? I, 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 like, the, I like the way you went and took that to uh, the next step, which is there's enough sort of structure and intelligence in the network that therefore it can kind of become self-sustaining. Is that the point? I think so. And, and it's, it becomes more autonomous as well. You have things that we describe in Technovision like DAOs, distributed autonomous organizations, with, which are let, literally organizational concepts that, that, that enable a, a, a business to, to, uh, to run itself without um, obvious leadership because decisions can be made literally on the fly through uh, maybe a voting system or any other like of collaborative system to, to describe policies and strategies and make decisions. And, and you would be um, in, in a new world of startups, for example, these, these DAOs as an organizational unit are almost a default by now. Mm. Uh, so, so, so clearly sooner or later in the wider enterprise context, we're, we're going to embrace these concepts as well. The bit in there I love is the sort of code of laws of the organization where we all work to that which society binds itself to anyway. And now the corporate world is catching up to how we've lived our lives for many years, mm. many hundreds of years, and now learning that actually the community uh, can often make a better decision than the command and co control structures of the past. Yeah, yeah. So, Ron, there's an awful lot in there in Technovision. Indeed. But if somebody was new in... And this may be a very tough question, but if you could summarize it in a few statements and then say, what should somebody think they should use this for? How could they use it to achieve some outcomes? Could you just sum up in a few sentences in your own words what Technovision is, basically? It, it still depends, of course, always. You're, you're never just looking for technologies and trends, but, but you're looking at uh, the type of challenges or opportunities you're addressing. So in these, in these three big areas, you, you first of all look at scarcity. Right. And, and how can we use technologies to deal with scarcity? And then you see, of course, AI and intelligent process automation, uh, but also collaborative team environments, all as way to, to, to deal with that. But also the whole trend in green software engineering and in data engineering. We have this little new trend in applications unleashed, which is called little green app, uh, which, which is sort of the, the, the applications variant to, uh, to net zero data, but it's all making the same plea. Um, start to re-engineer your, your applications and also your data uh, to be more sustainable. And while doing so, you find out it's a journey with benefits. So there's the scarcity thing. Sustainability, we see a lot in infrastructure, of course, um, with the move to the cloud, but, but so much more there also with the edge and the Internet of Things that all help us to create a info structure which is uh, more sustainable, uh, which, which delivers more uh, with lesser impact on, uh, on uh, society as a whole. And the, uh, and the environment, obviously smart algorithms and AI again, and, and the sharing of data helps us a lot. Also in new collaborative environments to, to 
really achieve your sustainability goals because if there's one thing we've learned from sustainability, it's not only the scope one and two that is in di- your direct influence, but it's scope three, the others that, that are particularly interesting. And there you need to connect and collaborate. So, so the, 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 we see several of these technologies that help you to achieve that. And, and then finally, there, there's a lot of flexible, agile technologies like, like microservices-based application stacks. And again, collaboration technologies that, that help us to uh, work together, even if the, if the environment is extremely unstable and unpredictable. And we're still able to uh, you know, manage our, our supply chains, our, uh, our workforce, and all of our other, uh, let's say, production processes. So, so, so it's always, uh, Rob, a matter of not, not only looking at what are the juicy trends, but I particularly like this idea of what I'm trying to address here. What are the challenges I'm, I'm looking for? And, that, and then Technovision is a huge repository. Michelle, what have you been looking at this week? So each week I will do some research on what's trending in tech, and this time I want to focus on the recent announcements from Microsoft around adding ChatGPT to Bing and Google's announcement on BART. Mm-hmm. So Microsoft announced on Tuesday that it was using the technology behind ChatGPT, which is developed by OpenAI, to enhance its Bing search engine and the Edge web browser. So Microsoft already made a multi-billion dollar investment into OpenAI and are now really seeking to capitalize on the worldwide excitement around ChatGPT, which is now already changing how people are getting their information. Bing is going to be based on a more powerful version of ChatGPT. It would help the users to refine their queries more easily, give more relevant results, and make shopping a lot easier. Very important, right? To be honest with you, nobody needs to make shopping any easier for me. (laughs) It's way too easy already. (laughs) It's going to be much more easier now. Uh Uh-oh. So Google revealed BART on Monday, and it was undergoing specialist testing and would be made more widely available to the public in the upcoming weeks. Hmm. On Wednesday, Google decided to host a news conference in Paris, where it shared more details about its progress integrating AI into search. And all the investors were underwhelmed by this demonstration. What went on? Now, during the demo, Bart was asked about new discoveries from the James Webb Space Telescope. And in one of its responses, Bart said that the telescope was used to take the first picture of a planet outside the Earth's solar system. But NASA says those were actually taken by a different telescope. It was Hubble. And after this, Google lost $100 billion in market value. I mean, how fickle is the market there that a, a pre-release of an AI gets something wrong? It's a reasonable thing. Down a pub quiz, that's the sort of thing you could get wrong at a pub quiz as well. So a human would fall foul of that 100, 100 billion off your share price yeah. because you got a question wrong. It's a bit harsh. Yeah. Yeah. Google was really in a rush here, releasing BART and presenting it to the public that early. Because it, it, how much market pressure is building around AI that these organizations, these great big behemoth organizations are rushing stuff out to try and keep up and then the stock market can do such a, you know, a, a reaction to a, quite a simple thing going wrong. Yeah. Yeah, it's really crazy. Yeah. Yeah, but since search is their main business, it was likely that it would have a huge impact on this, right? True. Yeah. It, it, will co- it will cost correct. It's just it's just a matter of iterating on that, and it will get to the right place, I'm sure. Uh, but let, let's talk about um, the Chat GPT interface to Bing. Have you seen it yet, and have you had a go at using it? No, I've I've signed up for the waiting list, and I don't have access yet, so uh, I haven't seen it. No. And and what you mentioned that it had a more sophisticated version of Chat GPT in it. Do we have any more? info on what that is like what what's most of it is is it the bing interface that's creating the increased sophistication in the questioning or is there something else going on with chat gpt there it's summarizing um websites for instance or it can give you some additional information on top of what the search engine already does that's what i've seen up till now and what is what will be next is very unclear at the moment they have just released or shown a little piece of what the features would be. So, but I'm curious, Ron, have you been following these announcements this week? 
Of course, of course. And what do you think about the race between Microsoft and Google? Oh, that there probably will be other contenders as well, right? And and it seems to be it seems to be much more about um, what will attract um, most advertisements, most ads, right? Um, because I I do think there there are two different things, frankly. So searching for something, uh, you're looking for sources, right, um, of information, and and you know maybe these sources, so you trust them. It's on Reuters or it's on CNN or it's you know TechCrunch, whatever, and and you and you sort of sort of trust that because you know the sources. And, and if you're looking for answers, which is an answer machine, it, it just says, well, you know, give me an answer on a question. And never mind the sources, uh, which, by the way, ChatGPT couldn't even give uh, because it's a generative AI that doesn't glue together little pieces of source content. It doesn't work like that. It just, it just, you know, tries to generate a pattern that it has seen before. Um, so, so they're very different things. Uh, I, I think it's much more about ads, it seems, than anything else. Uh, the trick, of course, of, of particularly Microsoft is playing very well is, is building this in into anything else like so whether it's Excel or PowerPoint or Word or Outlook. I'm already using ChatGPT to uh, to brighten up a little bit my my text in memos and emails every now and then. Yeah, right. And sometimes I have some fun with it by saying, well, how would you know Ernest Hemingway would have said this? So I just give it. No, really, I've done it. I, I give it some text and I say, well. Let's rewrite this in the style of Ernest Hemingway. And I, I love that, by the way, that, that really brightens up. There, there's barely a day go by then Rob doesn't send me a haiku on something yeah. that he's been working <laughs> with. Chat I'm obsessed. It, I find haikus really difficult to write, and the thing just turns them out really quickly, and they're very, very good. So I yes. sit there and just... Uh, that's, that's, so you moved from the cheese jokes to the haikus. Uh, uh, yeah, cheese and haiku. I did actually ask it to write a haiku about cheese. I'll have to hunt it out for another guy. <laughs> I bet it's... A, I bet it's extremely moving. <laughs> okay, thank you, Shalk. Ron, we like to end every episode of this show by asking the guests what they are excited about doing next. So what are you excited about doing next? Uh, well, you know, um, as, as a side hobby, I'm a little bit of a music producer. I, I do some silly things with a, uh, a surf rock band, which is really just a one-man band these days, but with a lot of uh, technology to make it sound like a, oh, a full band. And now I'm also um, exploring AI to see how it can produce, um, um, you know, songs. So, so singing and, uh, and, and rap. Uh, and uh, I, I expect within a few uh, weeks, uh, uh, Rob, that, that haiku also will be able to be sung by somebody, I guess, and maybe in a nice <laughs> Japanese voice. So definitely yeah. recommend that as the next big thing. A huge thanks to our guest this week. Ron, thank you so much for being on the show to our sound and editing wizard, Ben, and of course, to all of our listeners. We're on LinkedIn and Twitter. Dave Chapman, Rob Kernan, and Xiao Kizal. Feel free to follow or connect with us and let us know if you have any ideas for the show. And of course, if you haven't already done that, rate and subscribe to our podcast. See you in the same reality next week. <laughs>